our speaker today, Bob Mrazek, graduated from Cornell University and has served first in the U.S. Navy and then five terms in the United States Congress. Thank you for your service, Bob. Since leaving political life, he has authored 10 books earning the American Library Association's top honor for military fiction, best book in American history from the Washington Post, and the Michael Shara Award for Civil War Fiction. Author Michael Shara's book, The Killer Angels, is a classic read for any Civil War buff, and I highly recommend it. Our author also wrote and co-directed the 216 feature film, The Congressman. He is here with us today to discuss his new book, The Indomitable Florence Finch, the untold story of a war widow turned resistance fighter and savior of American POWs. It is a fascinating true story that unfolds against the Bataan Death March, the fall of Corregidor, and the daily struggle to survive a brutal occupying force. Most of all, and this is very appropriate for Women's History Month, which just started yesterday, it is the story of an unimaginably brave Filipino-American woman who belongs in America's pantheon of war heroes. Welcome, Bob. Thank you very much, Maureen, for that generous introduction. And uh, I was noticing the new arrivals as they came up on my screen, and I'm amazed that there are people all over the country, including Harpswell, Maine, which uh, is very close to my son who lives in Topsom. And uh, I spend six months out of the year uh, in Maine, actually, on a place called Monhegan Island, which is uh, 12 miles out off the coast and a wonderful place to have ridden out the last four years. Uh, <clears throat> let me just say that to start with, thousands and thousands of books have been written about men at war. I've written a couple of good ones myself, uh, but there are relatively very few about women who made a serious difference, um, and particularly in the Second World War. The photograph you see is of Florence Finch uh, in 1938, shortly before the war began. And uh, I wonder why uh, Florence isn't really better known today. And the answer is fairly simple. She is not only, was not only a warrior and a war hero, although as a warrior, she never fired a gun. She used a pen, but she, uh, she was one of the most decorated women of the second world war, American women anyway, and uh, received the, the uh, Medal of Freedom from President Harry Truman for saving hundreds of lives of American POWs who had survived the Bataan Death March, who had survived the fall of Corregidor and were dying by the hundreds, principally in a large POW camp in a place called Cabanatuan, north of Manila. The reason we don't know about Florence Finch, I think it, it, it's amazing in this time of celebrities being celebrated for becoming celebrities, although they accomplished nothing with their lives. Um, Florence was a woman of, of deep humility. She never talked about what she did during the war. Uh, 
she never told her own children uh, what she had done during the war and what she had endured after being arrested uh, by the Japanese Kempei Tai, their secret police, being tortured, raped, uh, and enduring uh, horrible suffering. Um, it was only in 1995, which is 50 years after the end of the Second World War, when the US Coast Guard decided to name its new Pacific headquarters in Hawaii after Florence Finch and her children who were adults at the time were absolutely flabbergasted, were shocked and wondering you know, how this had all happened. Uh, it, it is a remarkable story. I know old politicians, of course, are prone to exaggeration, but uh, it's, it's really the best story I've, I've ever encountered. Uh, it starts with uh, this man, uh, photograph number one. His name was uh, Charles Ebersol. He came from Buffalo, New York. At the age of 16, he was swept away with romantic passion for the thrilling adventures of Teddy Roosevelt taking the Rough Riders up San Juan Hill. So he volunteered for the army, but he was only 16 years old. He couldn't legally do it, but he got his parents to work with him and said he wanted to be a medic rather than a soldier, which is what he became. And he was sent to the Philippines in 1899 aboard a hospital ship. And he served as a medic uh, for the army until the end of the war in 1902. Uh, the war coarsened him a great deal. There were a lot of atrocities on both sides, both the United States forces and the Philippine insurrectionists, uh, mostly by the American forces, unfortunately. Uh, he tended to many of those who were wounded. At the end of the war in 1902, he decided to stay in the Philippines. Uh, he found that he loved the culture, the people, uh, the, the climate as compared to his hometown of Buffalo, New York. And so he became a contractor. You know, now that it was an American occupation, uh, we were building schools and hospitals and roads across the Philippines. And he became a very successful contractor uh, and eventually bought a large plantation uh, in Isabella province, which is north of Manila, near uh, uh, the city of Santiago. And he built it into something quite extraordinary uh, where it ran a mile on both sides of the uh, Calau River near Santiago. It was a tobacco plantation, high-end tobacco, uh, various fruits and vegetables. Um, shortly after he bought the plantation, he fell in love with a young woman named Maria Hermoso. And uh, there was only one problem with that relationship. She was already married. Uh, to a former Spanish soldier, uh, but with a kind of reptilian coldness, uh, Charlie uh, decided to offer her, because they couldn't be married, a common law marriage, which uh, you know she accepted at that time. And they had four children together, uh, picture number two. Uh, the fourth child was the girl in the center her birth name was Lauren May Ebersol. Uh, 
that is her older sister Norma on the left and her brother Edward on the right. Um, Charlie and Maria uh, seem to have a wonderful marriage, but at around the time this photograph was taken, um, Maria's daughter with her first husband, the former Spanish soldier, her name was Flaviana, and she was a little girl when Charlie and Maria came together. But by 1922, uh, she had grown into a lovely version of her mother, um, a lot more sophisticated because her mother was illiterate and Flaviana was in a position to have been brought up to uh, study English and learn English. <clears throat> and at 17, uh, Flaviana fell in love with a young Filipino and her mother strongly urged her to marry him, which she did. And about two months after the wedding, Charlie, who was not used to having anything taken away from him, rode on horseback to the village where Flaviana was living with her new husband and said he wanted Flaviana to come and live with him as his common law wife. Uh, shades of Woody Allen, I suppose, with the new documentary out. Uh, he brought Flaviana home and proceeded to install her in the big plantation house and told Maria with the children that she could live in the original house that they lived in before he built the new one or she could leave. And she accepted those terms uh, for the time being and uh, some time passed over a year and the, the blow that really changed things was that Flaviana decided she wanted to be married. Now there's no divorce in the Philippines, it's a Catholic country. Um, she was already married, but she wanted to be married again. So Charlie built a chapel on the plantation in order to have a marriage ceremony with Flaviana, which seemed to be the final straw for Maria who in Spanish terms went loco and began beating uh, her children uh, as if they were somehow responsible for Charlie deciding to leave her. It was at that time that Charlie came to, to Loring May as her name was at that time. She was seven years old and he said, um, I'm going to be sending you to a new school in Manila uh, for mestizos. And mestiza was a term for uh, a young person who was half Filipino and half American. And the Union Church Hall School had been set up in Manila for mestizos. And Charlie sent Florence at the age of seven to that school. She never returned to the plantation. And from the age of seven to 17, she lived on her own at the school and became strongly independent and very self-reliant. And as hard as it was from a family standpoint and losing your family, uh, it enabled her to become quite strong and independent at, at a young age. She also found herself mentoring the younger mestizos as she grew older, who were dealing with a lot of prejudice uh, even within the Union Church Hall itself with its congregation that actually pitied the mestizos and treated them as 
in the in, in, in the words of of one of the uh, elders of the church, uh, tar babies. Um, and so at 17, uh, she graduated from the Union Church Hall School and went to college. She excelled at everything she did. She was a very good student. She was a valedictorian of her class. Um, and when she graduated from school, she went to work for the uh, Army Navy Club of, of the Philippines. And that was a very large installation. It had hundreds of rooms for visiting servicemen. Uh, by then, of course, the Philippines was a very large uh, military base. We had the Pacific Fleet based there. Uh, so the Army Navy Club was uh, an adjunct of the YMCA. And within a few years, Florence was the de facto manager of uh, the YMCA and the Army Navy Club, working for its director, a man named H.J. Schofield, uh, who had fallen in love with uh, Florence. Uh, she was quite lovely, as we will see again in picture three, uh, which was taken uh, in 1938. Uh, shortly afterward, she met and fell in love with a special agent of US Naval Intelligence, whose name was Charles Smith. They called him Bing Smith because he had an uncanny resemblance to the crooner of Bing Crosby, except that Bing Crosby was a diminutive fellow. He was about five, six. And uh, Bing Smith, as he became known, was six two and the all-star pitcher on the Pacific all fleet team for the US Navy. So if we go to picture four, you'll get a glimpse of, of uh, Charles Bing Smith. Uh, again, this is shortly before the war and at the uh, Army Navy Club YMCA where Florence was the de facto manager. Uh, they dated a considerable period of time. Uh, Bing had been married once before and was not ready to make a commitment of marriage. Uh, he did introduce Florence to uh, a guy who was the deputy director of army intelligence for the US Army in the Philippines uh, and who worked across the hall from, from Bing uh, and who was looking for a new administrative assistant. And Charlie recommended that he interview Florence and if we can go to the next picture, you'll be introduced to Lieutenant Colonel uh, Charles uh, Carl Engelhart. Uh, Engelhart was a brilliant intelligence officer. Uh, he spoke fluent Japanese and uh, had served as the army attache in the Tokyo embassy for three years from 1928 to 1931. Uh, he spoke Japanese fluent enough to, to have a Tokyo accident, accent as far as the Japanese that he met were concerned. <clears throat> he saw early on that the Japanese, after, particularly after the invasion of, of China, uh, were uh, committed to becoming 
a first-class military power. And he put together an intelligence network across the Far East that began generating intelligence that became worrisome to him. And in 1941, he was convinced that the Japanese were going to start a war with us. By then, General Douglas MacArthur was commanding the US Army forces in the Philippines. And he had a, a head of intelligence who Carl worked for named Brigadier General Charles Willoughby. Now, Charles Willoughby was not really a, an Anglo-Saxon. His birth name was Adolf Weichenbach. One of his early heroes was Benito Mussolini. And MacArthur referred to him as his pet fascist. But Willoughby discounted all of the intelligence that Engelhart was providing to him and indirectly to General MacArthur that the Japanese were planning an attack on the United States, although he was not sure where it was going to occur. <clears throat> it obviously did occur on December 4th, 1941, um, when the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor and 24 hours later launched uh, an airstrike uh, airstrikes against uh, the Philippines. Um, by then, Florence had married Bing, and six months earlier, and when the Japanese invaded the Philippines in December, uh, late December of 1941, both Carl Engelhardt and, uh, and Bing Smith were uh, moved from Manila over to Corregidor. Uh, the fortress of Corregidor, which was viewed to be as invulnerable as the British fortress at Singapore. Uh, ultimately, neither one of them proved to be invulnerable. Um, when the Japanese uh, invaded the Philippines, the U.S. forces, which were highly untrained, inadequate, uh, and, and, and much smaller than the forces of the Japanese, withdrew into the Bataan Peninsula. Uh, the battle for Bataan unfolded over the next few months, um, and the uh, uh, the two men, Engelhart, uh, was uh, handling all of the uh, submarine defenses on Corregidor, and Bing Smith um, went off to uh, serve in a capacity aboard a ship, which he had served on prior to the war. Um, in, in February of 1942, uh, Bing was part of a small group that was attacking a Japanese amphibious position behind the American lines on Bataan. <clears throat> in the course of this action, as he saved fellow crewmates, from uh, a Japanese air attack uh, by Japanese fighter planes, the Zero fighter planes. Uh, he was killed, saving the lives of the others. And General MacArthur presented him with the Distinguished Service Cross posthumously, the second highest award for bravery and heroism uh, to the Medal of Honor. Uh, at the fall of Corregidor, 
the Japanese were surprised to discover that Carl Engelhardt, who surrendered with the others, uh, spoke fluent Japanese. And a young officer who he was escorting around the fortress and who turned out to be a member of a prince in the, in the Japanese royal family, said to Carl, uh, knowing that he was going into captivity, um, what is, if there's anything I can do, let me know. And, and Carl had a carbon copy of the Distinguished Service Cross citation, won by, by Bang. And he told the Japanese officer, would it be possible for him to give that to Bing's widow in Manila? Because otherwise she would not have any knowledge of what occurred or happened to her husband and would have to live with that uncertainty. And the Japanese officer did visit Florence at the home that she and Bing had on Pennsylvania Avenue and in Manila. And that was when Florence learned that her husband was, had been killed in action. And it was what, it was a heavy blow for her to, to receive six months after they were married and she was deeply in love with him. But it's fair to say it, aside from the fact that it made Florence uh, transformed from a convent educated young woman and, and, and wife into someone who was committed to trying to defeat the Japanese occupying authority. She wasn't sure she how, how she was going to do it, but from learning of, after the death of her husband um, and how he died, she vowed to, to, uh, to try to live up to that standard. Um, again, because of what happened to her as a child in that Dickensian situation that I described earlier, um, she was strong and independent. Um, soon after his death, she learned about a job available in the Philippine Liquid Fuel uh, Distribution Union. This had been set up as a, as a corporation by the Japanese army to distribute all liquid fuel to the, to the Japanese military, to the, to the Navy, to the army, all of the gasoline, the diesel fuel, uh, kerosene, whatever was left uh, was rationed to the Philippine people. And Florence was able to secure a job in which she filled out the warehouse receipts and the purchase coupons for fuel uh, that was rationed uh, to, the, to, the, to the Philippine civilians, principally in the economic sector. Uh, one morning she was reading the weekly newsletter from the liquid fuel union and saw that men had been arrested for falsifying purchase coupons. Um, and that stuck with her it was then that she learned through a newly developed underground uh, communication system that Carl Engelhart was still alive and living in Cabanatuan, uh, a prison camp housing about 40,000 Americans uh, after the fall of Bataan. 
Um, and he was able to smuggle out a note to Florence that he was still alive, but that the men in Cabanatuan were dying very quickly, about 500 a week and more. And he was slowly starving to death along with a number of the men that he served with. And it was then that Florence was able to concoct a plan by setting up a network, an underground network, and falsifying purchase coupons for fuel and warehouse receipts. And then when the fuel was collected by members of the underground, they would sell it on the black market. And she took the money and bought food and medicine that she could then smuggle into the Kamanatuan prison camp and through Carl Engelhardt, uh, distribute that, that food and medicine to others, uh, saving their lives, particularly in the early years. Uh, in the next picture, you'll see a photograph of Carl lighting his pipe at the Cabanatuan prison camp. It was secretly taken by uh, a fellow prisoner and uh, the, the lives of those men uh, were, uh, needless to say, uh, at, at, at great risk uh, during the war because they had very little food. And if Florence hadn't been able to divert eventually tons of gasoline and diesel fuel to the underground, which supported not only the men at Cabanatuan, but the Americans the civilians who were at Santo Tomas University, <clears throat> also in uh, a prison camp, many of whom Florence knew and was friendly with and also supported. And she did this for two and a half years uh, with, at, at the fuel, uh, Liquid Fuel Union, uh, where there were 98 Japanese officers and all of them uh, essentially in a position to look over the shoulders of the Philippine workers to make sure that, that what she was doing could never occur. And the way she did it was <clears throat> to give out these false coupons and warehouse receipts. And then she would get into the office early on, on a Monday morning and have to retrieve the ones that had been filled out uh, and given to the underground. The reason she needed to do this was because otherwise the Japanese would have been quickly aware of the fact that she was diverting hundreds of, of gallons of fuel every week. She did this for two and a half years up until October of 1944 when one of her couriers was arrested by the Japanese trying to smuggle food and medicine into the camp and under torture confessed that Florence was the head of their underground network. It was at that time she was arrested uh, by the Kempetai, the Japanese secret police, and taken to a place called the airport studio, which had been a Japanese-owned photography studio before the war, but it was now uh, where they interrogated their prisoners. Uh, she was put in a cell that was two feet by four feet in dimension and kept there while they conducted their interrogations, uh, uh, connecting up to her fingers, 
the points of, 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 of wires that were connected to a transformer, which would then be turned on and up. And when they didn't get an answer that they were looking for, uh, they would send those shocks through her system until her fingers were, were blackened uh, with, with uh, like charcoal. Uh, she was raped by the Japanese prison guards, degraded in every possible way. And although she confessed to doing, to being the head of the network, she continued to refuse to disclose who the others were in that network. Ultimately, many of them were captured and caught and, and, and executed regardless. Um, in January of 1945, after General MacArthur had led the reinvasion of the Philippines at Leyte Gulf and had sent uh, a flying squad of the 1st Cavalry Division into Manila to go to the political prisons uh, where uh, American prisoners uh, like Florence were kept and were able to save her literally the night before she was to be beheaded and executed. And she was taken to a hospital at Santo Tomas. She weighed 77 pounds. She was 125 going into the war and, uh, and nursed back to health. And, and at that point, because her husband was a highly decorated uh, Navy officer, and she had served Army intelligence up to the war, uh, she qualified to be repatriated to the United States, although she had never come to the United States before. But alone, she boarded a ship, came across the Pacific, and then took a train by herself across the country to Buffalo, where Charlie Ebersole's sister Mabel still lived, and where Florence began a new life uh, in the United States. Um, as I mentioned, in 1947, she was awarded the Medal of Freedom by President Harry Truman for having saved several hundred American lives. By then, she had met uh, the man who was to become her second husband, uh, Robert Finch, and she married Bob Finch, and they moved to Ithaca, New York, where he went and took a job with the Agway uh, chain. And she had two children and lived a quiet life here in Ithaca. She became a deacon in the First Presbyterian Church here. Um, and she lived to the age of 101 and died at a local nursing home here in uh, toward the end of 2016. Even at the end of her life, she was a mentor. Uh, she was the go-to person by the nursing home staff. When someone was losing interest in life, was thinking of giving up, they would send Florence in to speak to them, to talk about savoring each day, to cherish each day that they were blessed with in life. Uh, it was a privilege for me to research and write the story of this strong, independent woman
of profound humility. Uh, I learned about the story only through the New York Times when uh, a very lengthy obituary was written about her and what she had accomplished by a man named Sam Roberts. Anyway, for those of you who haven't read the book, I, I really feel I, I did justice to her life and uh, I think you'll like her. And uh, I'd be happy to answer any questions you have uh, about the book, about Florence, uh, and thank you. Oh, forgive me. That's the last, uh, that, that last photograph is of Florence when in 1995, she went to Hawaii for the unveiling of the new headquarters, uh, Pacific headquarters for the United States Coast Guard, which is in fact named after Florence. Wonderful, thank you so much, Bob. So our first question is, what happened to Engelhart? Did she divorce him or did he die? Um, in, with respect to her first husband was Bing Smith, uh, who was killed saving his crewmates' lives uh, off Batan in a PT boat. Um, and her second husband, Bob Finch, she uh, remained with until he died in 1968, uh, very young. Uh, he had survived uh, fighting in Europe uh, during the Second World War, fighting with, with Patton's Third Army. He had seen a lot of action too. Uh, as far as Carl Engelhart, uh, who was her boss in Army Intelligence and whose life she saved, he lived until 1995 and they got together quite regularly. My research suggests that Carl Engelhart fell in love with Florence, like a number of other men did, but it was never consummated. He was an old school guy. He was married uh, and he stayed with his wife. Um, but the two of them shared a very deep bond, as deep as a bond as one could imagine. How old was Florence when she was captured? She was 28 years old when she was captured um, and uh, arrested by the Kempe Thai. Uh, you know, the, the war uh, dragged on in the Philippines through uh, two and a half years before MacArthur came back. And it was a time of almost depravity on the part of many of the Japanese who looked at the Filipinos as inferior beings, and particularly the women. And one of the men that Florence recruited for her underground network, <clears throat> uh, and who did survive the war, uh, initially said to Florence, you know, one of, the, one of the real reasons we have a chance to make it is because the Japanese would never believe that you, as a woman, would be capable of creating this methodology for stealing tons of fuel from them and diverting it to the underground, which she did. We have a couple questions about uh, the process 
So how long did it take for you to gather this information um, about, about Florence? You said it came across your desk in the, I assume the New York Times article, but so how long did it take and what process did you, did you use to kind of gather um, this story? Yeah, it could not have been written without uh, the fact that Florence was a prolific letter writer. And uh, when her father, Charlie, died in 1928 of lung cancer, um, Florence's aunt Mabel, who was Charlie's uh, sister, wrote to Florence and said, I want to remain in close contact with you. I want to be in close contact with you. And the two of them began a correspondence from 1928, literally up to the week of the Pearl Harbor attack. And those letters saved by Mabel from Florence provided a great uh, insight into her life from the time she was 15 years old, uh, 13 years old rather, until the war. Uh, also, Mabel had saved all of Charlie Eversoll's letters. So we had a lot of insight into Charlie and his actions uh, prior to the war. Um, and the, uh, the biggest challenge for me from a research standpoint was that when um, I, I secured permission from Florence's son and daughter uh, to tell her story and to be given the treasure trove of letters that enabled me to tell the story. <clears throat> I asked them about her early childhood and they didn't know anything. And they said that when they had asked their mother about her early childhood before she went off to the Union Church Hall School at the age of seven, she said she had no memories of it. And I felt I needed to know, I had to find out what, you know, what that history was. And it was almost serendipitous uh, when I was researching, uh, I decided to research in Manila the uh, the estate, that the, the plantation that Charlie owned, because I knew from the family that there had been a battle that took place over the plantation, which was very substantial, between Maria's children, Charlie's first common-law wife, and then Maria's daughter, who became his second common-law wife, Flaviana. She had seven children, and they were battling over the estate. And fortunately, I was able to find in literally yellowed documents, 80 pages from the court action in Manila over Charlie's estate. And it included sworn affidavits from Maria, from Flaviana, from the children about what had occurred uh, in those early years. And it was that that allowed me to bring out the fact that you know Charlie had this reptilian side to him where he took any woman that that he decided was worthy of him and uh, and so that was that was that was important in filling in the big question mark about the early part of her life uh, I never met her although I was a government major at Cornell when she was the uh, administrator for the Far East Studies Department uh, shared by George Cahan, uh, Professor Cahan, and I 
uh, took a couple of courses with with uh, Professor Kane in the studies of Far East Studies Department. It's entirely possible that our paths crossed back in 1966 or 67, but uh, had no I have no way of knowing for sure. And uh, anyway, it was it was a lot of fun to research this story. So we're talking about family. Do we know what happened to the rest to her family? Um, the rest of, in the Philippines. Did she ever reconnect with them after? Yes, yes. Um, Florence's older sister Norma uh, remained behind in the Philippines, um, and uh, Flaviana and her family remained in the Philippines. Uh, Maria, who was a very unhappy uh, woman, uh, needless to say, for the rest of her life, which lasted a few years beyond the end of the Second World War. Um, Florence remained in very close touch with Norma and some of her <laughs> stepmother, who was also her stepsister, uh, and her family. Uh, and they, all of them survived the war. So we can kind of roll this into, into one question. Um, so how did the food get delivered to the camps? And was the underground network able to continue providing supplies for American POWs after Florence's arrest? Could you repeat the second part of that question, Victoria? Sure. Um, well, was the underground network able to continue providing supplies for the American POWs after Florence's arrest? Um, okay, first part of the question. The American prisoners were very resourceful. And um, one of them uh, was assigned to work in an intake place where Filipinos who were uh, bringing supplies to the Japanese military that was overseeing the prison system um, and carrying these supplies on ox carts, uh, he was able to befriend them and using limited amounts of money that had been retained by the prisoners, pay them to first allow messages to go in and out uh, of the camp uh, to people that, for example, Carl Engelhart knew in Manila and other prisoners knew in Manila. And people in Manila were interested in what happened to their loved one or relative. Did they survive in the prison camp? So it started with messages and then it led to being able to smuggle in on these same ox carts that were bringing the Japanese their supplies, the supplies that were being diverted to the Americans once they got the, once the ox carts came into the camp and these supplies were unloaded. So they were able to do that successfully for a good long time. And it, it, it's what really saved thousands of the Americans. Um, the, the, the camp, the, the, when, when, when Florence, forgive me, when Florence was arrested in October, 1944, the number of prisoners in the camp was dramatically less than originally after the fall of Bataan and Corregidor when there were about 40,000 Americans in the camp. 
um, they, as, the, as the war progressed, the Japanese knew that they were losing the war. They also needed to resupply because more and more Japanese were going into the military. They needed to resupply people who were working in the coal mines, in factories. Um, and so they began uh, transporting the American prisoners who were able to function, who were able to walk. Uh, and uh, they were putting them on ships and sending them across the Sea of Japan to Korea and to Japan. So by the time Florence was arrested, there were uh, around 2,000 people left in the camp and they were, they were able to survive or the ones who were still there were able to survive. About 800 were ultimately freed uh, by MacArthur's troops. Did the government of Philippines ever recognize her sacrifice and efforts? Did the Philippine government or yeah. the American government? The Philippine government. I don't, I don't believe that Florence was ever officially recognized by the Philippine government as a heroine. Uh, they did focus on those men and women, Philippine men and women who were part of the underground um, and who fought against the, the Japanese occupying authority. And one of the most important elements of that Philippine underground was the organization that Florence was supporting by diverting fuel directly to them, which were they, they were able to then use for their vehicles and so forth. But no, um, Florence was recognized by President uh, Truman she was also recognized by Douglas MacArthur, and I believe was the only American woman to receive his Asiatic Pacific uh, ribbon, which was another sign of valor, um, making her perhaps the most decorated American woman, certainly in the Philippines during the war. But again, with the depth of humility that, that Florence had, it, was un, it, it just was not something that was important to her. When she was asked about it years later, she said the only heroes and heroines were the people that I served with who didn't make it. Got another two part, kind of a two part. Um, how many World War II stories are like this one untold until now? And we've entered an era where the personal files of people who lived through the war are being inherited and possibly thrown away. If someone has letters like those of Florence, what should they do with them? Yeah, as, as to the first part of the question, um, I think there are many stories. I'm not sure that they reflect um, the same degree of accomplishment in, in, in terms of saving specific numbers of lives, but there are many stories of women, unsung heroes during the Second World War that have never been told and that hopefully will be told in the future. Um, the focus has always been on the men, the men in combat. And as I said, I've written a couple of books uh, about uh, Americans during the Second World War who were worthy of those books. But I think the women have been shortchanged 
and um, there are going to be more stories about women in the future. As to the records that are being destroyed, I know that we have the U.S. National World War II Museum in New Orleans that was begun uh, and co-founded by Stephen Ambrose, uh, the great World War II historian, who felt the same concern that you were just alluding to, that so many records and so many uh, examples of heroism and, and even simple service were being lost. And they have tens of thousands of oral histories um, at that museum and, and, and a lot of documentation as well. Uh, the National Archives, both in St. Louis and in College Park, Maryland, are great resources for people who, when a family is saying, well, what, what's the purpose, what's the value of, of all of this paperwork? Um, that have encouraged people to come forward and submit it to them to be preserved. Were all the American military captured after Corridor, uh, after Corridor uh, fell, Cor sorry, Corregidor fell, taken to the camp in the photo you showed? A man from my hometown was captured, then survived the camp. Can't wait to read the book. Forgive me, Victoria. I, I, again, I'm, I'm having a little problem with my Sorry. hearing. So were all the American military captured after Corregidor fell, sorry about that, taken to the camp that you showed in the photo? Yes. Um, a man from this person's hometown was captured then and survived the camp. Yeah, about 11,000 men. Uh, and, and two, 250 nurses uh, surrendered at Corregidor. Uh, in fact, it was Carl Engelhardt because of his fluency in Japanese that interpreted for the surrender of Corregidor. Uh, and both those men and women were then sent across Corregidor to Bataan indirectly through Manila. The Japanese wanted to make an example for the Filipinos of what loss meant, what defeat meant, because a lot of the Filipinos uh, had become very close to the Americans and were supportive of the Americans. And so the Japanese put all of the 11,000 and change Americans on board ships and came straight up to uh, the foot of Admiral Perry Boulevard, which was, uh, you know, right up next to the beaches. And they had been starving in Corregidor for weeks and run out of food. And they disembarked them from the ships and marched them through the streets of, of Manila so that the Philip and, and encouraged the Filipinos to come out and see this display of defeat, after which they were uh, sent up to Cabanatuan, some of them on foot, some of them by train. And they became part of the, uh, all of them were, were there at Cabanatuan. Uh, 
except for the nurses who were incarcerated separately. So, oh, sorry, I've got one more here. Hold on one second. Um, do the underground network and Filipino resistance groups have an advantage over the Japanese because of the geography of the um, archipelagic uh, country? <clears throat> well, the fact that the Philippines is made up of hundreds of islands, <clears throat> um, you know, the, the, the population was dispersed uh, across uh, those islands. Luzon, which is where Manila is located, uh, had the lion's share of the population, if you will, of the Filipinos, but the underground prospered on many of the islands in the archipelago. And uh, they had to lie dormant for a good period of time. MacArthur actually ordered them to be dormant for a couple of years because every time they would conduct uh, an operation against the Japanese occupying authority, as they did in uh, 1942 in particular, the Japanese rep reprisals were so brutal in terms of killing Filipinos who lived in the areas where the Japanese forces were attacked and, and eliminated. Um, MacArthur ordered them to go dormant, which they did up until 1944, uh, when they became very active again uh, on Luzon um, and began a lot of uh, undertaking a lot of operations to isolate the Japanese to target them, to target their installations, to target their fuel sources, and did that very courageously until the end of the war. So I think this is gonna be our last question. Um, so you had mentioned when uh, Florence got the news of her husband's passing and that she took this as a kind of a calling. Um, you also mentioned that she was you know, very modest do you think that she felt like she had accomplished her goal? In fact, she did not. Um, at the end of the war, uh, as I spoke earlier, um, when she was strong enough to do it, she came to the United States and lived for a time, a, a few months with her, with her aunt Mabel, whose family lived in Buffalo. And she became very dissatisfied within a few months. Uh, she felt that she had failed to live up to the expectations that Charlie might have had for her, Ben Smith might have had for her, um, and that she had vowed on his death that she would do everything she could to defeat them. But she was continuing to read in the daily newspaper that battles were taking place in the Pacific the Battle of Okinawa, huge undertaking was taking place. She also found that a lot of Americans who were tired of war in Buffalo after four years 
and were talking about their own deprivations because they could not buy a new automobile because Detroit was not making new automobiles during the war. And they were complaining about that and complaining about their rationing and they weren't getting enough steak. And Florence, who had lived through those brutal conditions in the Philippines, decided, I'm going to enlist. And she wasn't sure uh, where to enlist, but she was going to fight. And her Aunt Mabel was shocked, horrified, that here Florence was just recovering her strength from everything you know, she had endured after being tortured by the Japanese. But she was a woman of great. Listen, when she made a determination she was going to do something, there was no dissuading her. So there happened to be a Coast Guard recruiting station in Buffalo. And she went down there and volunteered and became um, a SPAR. Uh, the, the SPAR was the name given to uh, female members of the Coast Guard. And she underwent training um, um, with the Coast Guard and uh, was planning to go back to the Pacific with the Coast Guard when she learned of the uh, dropping of the first bomb, the atomic bomb on Hiroshima. And shortly thereafter, of course, the war came to an end while she was still in the Coast Guard. 